This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Hey, it's Todd. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things might be different by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Republicans showed up for the former president in Iowa this week. In the past, Donald Trump has said he'll be a dictator or he'll pardon January 6th rioters if he's president again. But in this case, he gave supporters another reason to caucus. If you're single, you'll probably meet your future husband or wife. You'll definitely make some friends and you'll say hello to a lot of people you haven't seen in a while. No, it's really a great scene. It's a great scene, says the former President. It was a very different scene hours later for the Republican frontrunner. On the roundup today, we're going to hear why a judge threatened to kick Donald Trump out of court during a defamation trial. And we're watching some very important developments on border security and child tax credits. Let's welcome our panel. Wendy Benjaminson is Washington senior editor for Bloomberg News. Welcome back, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Anita Kumar is here, senior managing editor at Politico. Hi, Anita. Thanks for having me back. And Libby Casey, senior news anchor covering politics and breaking news at the Washington Post and my longtime Capitol Hill colleague. Hi, Libby. So great to be with you, Todd. Thanks. Great to have you here, too. All right, gang, let's get right into it. The story starts in Iowa. In many ways, it ends in Washington. That's the that's the long arc, maybe, of our show today. Iowa Republicans delivered on Monday and delivered big for Donald Trump. The campaign is now in New Hampshire, of course, where the first in the nation primary is set for Tuesday. So Libby, what's changed in this race since Iowa going into New Hampshire? I'm asking specifically, I guess, about Nikki Haley. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump won Iowa. Uh, This was not unexpected given the polls going into that vote. He was able to break that 50 percent threshold. And Nikki Haley really needed to come out of Iowa with a very strong finish. She wanted to knock out, essentially, Ron DeSantis, knock out the competition. But she wasn't able to do that. He eked ahead of her. And really, the outcome could not have been better for Donald Trump because he still has these two opponents who are going against each other, uh, which allows him to sort of just keep surging ahead. Um, If Ron DeSantis had had a really terrible performance in Iowa, he would have dropped out potentially or at least looked weaker. Nikki Haley could have had a clearer path in New Hampshire, and she could have put all of her, she has put all of her chips there. She could have really said, this is my moment um, to surge ahead. You know, if you want to squint really hard at Iowa and see the only thing that might be not good for Trump is that there still were 40% of those voters who picked someone else. And even though Trump is not the incumbent, right, he's not the sitting president, he just was the president. Um, And so that does leave some room. And so you can see how a Haley and a DeSantis might be squinting at that number and thinking they still have some hope. Um, But it's been a relatively quiet week in New Hampshire. This has not been the crazy, frenetic pace in New Hampshire that we're used to seeing in this final sprint. Haley is certainly there trying to hit things hard. Um, But 
you know, they've canceled debates. Haley pulled out of debates, um, instead opting to do town halls, saying she wouldn't debate DeSantis because Trump wasn't participating. So there's been quite a bit of air let out of New Hampshire. Yeah, there haven't been the same cast of characters. There hasn't been the same sort of frenetic pace in New Hampshire. Donald Trump's not debating at all. Here's former South Carolina governor. Here is Nikki Haley speaking to voters in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire on Wednesday. Rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. We can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. The hymn that Nikki Haley's talking about there, Wendy, of course, is Donald Trump. So Libby referred to Nikki Haley's path to a nomination. Um, is there one out of New Hampshire? I, I, I don't know how hard we have to squint, Libby says. I think you really, really have to squint. I mean, that was the big hope, right? It was assumed that Donald Trump would win Iowa. And then she was doing so well with um, the moderate Republicans that people New Hampshire, the and there were independents and Democrats who could cross over and register. And then she would have the momentum to go to her home state and at least do well, if not have the joy of winning her own home state. That path is narrowing very, very quickly. She is, um, you know, she came in, as Libby said, a third in Iowa with very little momentum. And and like Nikki Haley has, has always been since she's been on the national stage, she's inconsistent. So right there as she was beginning to get a lot of interest from independents, she said things like the Civil War. She didn't mention slavery as the cause of a civil war. She said she would pardon Donald Trump. And so if you are a voter who would vote for her because you think that's a stop Trump move, then the things she says aren't really helping that. And so with this sort of slow-mo into New Hampshire, if she doesn't come pretty close to him or win, then she'll be humiliated in her home state of South Carolina, probably. And then I don't know where she goes except no labels, which she says she's not interested mm. in. Robert emails to say something I haven't heard mentioned is the amount of time and money that Ron DeSantis poured into Iowa. When you com compare that to Haley's investment... She did pretty well. And I say, sure, um, that's one for the political consultants, I guess, to ponder. And how much money there is to be made ROI in Iowa probably doesn't impact what voters do too terribly much. Um, but, Anita, let's talk polls just for a second when we talk about Nikki Haley's path here. They're all over the place. A survey from American Research Group released on Tuesday put them neck and neck, Haley and Trump, so close among primary voters. Another one on Wednesday, Boston Globe NBC had like a 10-point spread, Trump ahead. Um, oh, no, sorry, 16 points, even worse for Nikki Haley um, up in New Hampshire. So those polls are kind of all over the place. Anita, what's your take on the path, if any, for Nikki Haley heading out of New Hampshire, and then I should add, onto South Carolina, which should matter for her. Yeah, I mean, the polls are, are the polls, right? I mean, they're they're going to be different, but we have seen her slowly gain traction in that state. Now, what does that traction mean? Is it single digits? Is it double digits? I mean, she was 30 points or so behind Trump in Iowa, so we're looking for just to, to get a little bit closer, right? Or she's looking for that. I mean, it's really her best chance to win an early state 
um, in a nominating contest, um, just this is the state for her. And she's put a lot of resources there, right? So she, her campaign has put a lot of resources. Uh, they have an outside super PAC that's put resources. So this is her best shot. Um, she has the endorsement of the governor, uh, you know, and, and as Wendy mentioned, it's the electorate that she's looking for. It's college educated, uh, folks. It's more moderate people that are, uh, undeclared in New Hampshire, which is essentially independent. So she does have a good shot. I just don't know that it'll come close enough, but this is the state. So if she wants to come close to Trump or closer, uh, come out of there and go right into her home state. Now, the home state is going to be more like Iowa. So, you know, the momentum is going to be here if she's going to have it. She feels like if she gets close enough, uh, DeSantis isn't going to do well, uh, likely in New Hampshire, that she'll have that momentum going into South Carolina. She's going to do it. She's going to have to do it here. Well, here's a quote. America has never been a racist country. That statement came from Nikki Haley on Fox News earlier in the week. Haley went on to say this. She said, I faced racism when I was growing up, and I can tell you that today is a lot better than it was then. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was also asked about uh, racism in a CNN town hall and asked if he agreed with her. Well, the U.S. uh, is not a racist country. Um, I think the Republican Party stands for merit and achievement and colorblindness. That is what we should stand for. So individual achievement and merit has to be restored in this country. A colorblind society is what we should aspire to, uh, and that's what I'll do as president. Uh, Libby, a few weeks ago, Nikki Haley wouldn't say that slavery caused the Civil War. Wendy mentioned this. Um, This shows what she thinks she can safely say to this GOP base, right? What is coursing through the Republican Party now that we're getting answers like this from candidates? Yeah. I mean, Nikki Haley is uh, the child of immigrants. And, and what she has done is tried to compare her own personal experience with, like, systemic racism. And she does say that she was a brown girl growing up in a small rural town. She faced racism. Her parents faced racism. But her parents, she says, never said we live in a racist country. And so she's trying to give this rousing sort of, you know, philosophical spirit of, of uh, America for all. Um, but she won't acknowledge uh, the turn of the the screw and, and look at the other side of this, which is, of course, we have a racist history in America. Um, and so there's this real question of whether we can just have a basic reckoning and acknowledgement of everything from issues from, the, you know, the, the Dred Scott decision uh, to uh, the, you know, the, the fact that black Americans weren't considered to be full humans in, in the Constitution. And there just seems to be this need to deny it. Um, and they, they, they just can't get in a comfortable zone of talking about America's real past with the idealism of America and the goals of America. We saw the same thing with Tim Scott. I mean, yeah. Tim Scott's line and Nikki Haley's line. I saw them both early in the campaigns on the trail. And and I talked to white voters who really liked the messages they were hearing because it was almost like an absolution, right? I have succeeded. Um, the race, you know, racism has not stopped me. Um, and it's a it's a very appealing, cathartic message, but it's not grappling with the reality of America's history. And and yet, Libby, the the distillation of all of this you know, America is not a racist country or your personal experience is kind of left to the side when you're asked what was the cause of the Civil War. I mean, we have to get back to that. This was a this was a question that Nikki Haley was unwilling. I don't think she's unable, uncomfortable, unwilling to answer accurately. Well, it's the news roundup, and that means we're rounding up the week's biggest stories. We'll be back with more after this short break. 
stay with us. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Let's get back to our news roundup now. Anita, we were talking before the break about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and the difficulty in the Republican primary or unwillingness to address questions of race or at least address them in a realistic way in in, in many cases. Um, Donald Trump has chosen, again, he's done this before, to start using Nikki Haley's given first name, Nimrata, as part of his attacks to go after her. And I'm, I'm interested in what you think about that tactic. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We've seen this before. I mean, this is really reminiscent of how Donald Trump treated uh, Barack Obama, right? He was promoting the lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and therefore ineligible to run for president. And he also used to uh, emphasize Obama's middle name, Hussein, at, at campaign rallies. So this is very similar uh, to that. He has, as you mentioned, used her first name. She has always gone by uh, her middle name, which is Nikki, uh, and has changed her last name, as many women did, probably still do, and did at the time when she got married to her husband's uh, last name. Um, and you know, has just sort of claimed, or I guess I would say she he recently amplified another post that claimed uh, she was not eligible to run in the in the United, run for president of the United States because her parents were not U.S. citizens at the time of her birth, but actually she was born in South Carolina. She talks about a lot and is a U.S. citizen. So this is a very familiar playbook uh, with Donald Trump, not just with Barack Obama, although that's the one we remember the most. But he's done this with Ted Cruz. He's done this with other folks, and it's one of uh, you know one of the things that he ends up doing when he's running against an opponent, when he wants to uh, really show who's his rival and, and kind of uh, stoke those, you know, racist, uh, you know, allegations. And so that's what he's that's what he's doing in this. this It started, I think, really last week, and he's done it several times now. He's trying to other her. He's trying to, to foreign her in a similar way, as you said, um, to what he did with Barack Obama and many others, uh, for that matter. Um, so let's stay on Donald Trump gang for a moment, but we have to get away from the campaign trail and into the courtroom. Or do we? Because increasingly, I guess they're pretty much the same thing. Donald Trump went directly from Iowa 
to New York, where he was back in federal court on Tuesday on another defamation claim brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. So last year, a jury found Trump liable for sexually abusing E. Jean Carroll in 1996 and then defaming her afterward. He was ordered to pay $5 million in that case. As he was leaving the courtroom this week, Trump, as he very often does, attacked the judge. In this case, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan. That's a nasty man. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy, and uh, it's obvious to everybody in the court. Trump speaking to reporters outside of the courtroom in New York on Tuesday. Wednesday, uh, Wendy, Donald Trump was already found liable for defaming E. Jean Carroll in one trial, as I mentioned. Why is he back in court for a second go? The short answer is because Donald Trump doesn't know when to stop talking. He was um, found guilt, found liable for defaming E. Jean Carroll for complaining about the trial in which she successfully sued him for sexual assault. And then he kept posting on social media that this wasn't true, that it didn't happen, that he didn't know her, and, and other things. And so she, um, she sued him again for defamation. And the judge in that case ruled that the defamation finding from the first trial carried over. And so what this trial is about is how much Donald Trump has to pay for defaming E. Jean Carroll. And he is, you know, he's very upset about being on trial again. And he's, um, so he got into it with the judge when he kept mugging for the jury, making faces, rolling his eyes, you know, muttering loud enough in a stage whisper that this was a con job and that the judge was out to get him. And finally, the judge, you know, had enough and threatened to expel him from the trial. And Trump mouthed off to the judge and said, you know, yeah, you'd love to throw me out or words to that effect. And the judge came right up to actually throwing him out. Well, let's, so, let's, talk, let's talk more about that. I should, just to put a finer point on it, I should say um, $5 million Trump was ordered for defaming E. Jean Carroll and for sexually assaulting her. This second case is also because a second part of Trump's defamation is while he was president of the United States. That's why this is in federal court. Trump tried to get this kicked out of federal court. I can't be responsible, held responsible for things I do as president. Courts many, many months ago said, no, you have to face the music. And so the reason this is in front of a federal judge is because Trump defamed E. Jean Carroll, allegedly, from the White House, literally. That's what this case is about. And we're going to, exactly. we're going to, this is not a question of whether he defamed. It's a question of how much more does a jury want Donald Trump to pay to get him to stop? That's what Eugene Carroll's lawyers were arguing in front of the judge. Make him stop. Make it worth his while to stop. But Anita, Wendy mentioned that Judge Kaplan threatened to kick Donald Trump out of court. Donald Trump actually said, I would love it if you did that. And I think he's telling yeah. the truth. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to this before, Todd, but we're, what, what we're seeing here is very unusual. We're seeing a presidential candidate go from a rally in New Hampshire and Iowa uh, and other states than to some of his trials. So he's been appearing in court in a variety of cases, and it's it, it sort of was surprising at first, but now it's sort of part of his day, right? I mean, I think he appeared in court and then went to New Hampshire for a rally. And so he's using these appearances in court basically as 
as politics, right? He'll come out later and he'll say, you know, look at look at what they've done. When he was in court, as as you and Wendy mentioned, he was sort of talking about sort of rolling his eyes, saying under his breath, but people could still hear, you know, this is a witch hunt. We hear that all the time in his rallies and uh, when he's talking to reporters. So he was saying some of that same stuff. And of course, uh, you know, the attorney on the other side, those are that that are on the other side are saying, look, the jury can hear, uh, people can hear this and he needs to, to behave. And so he did get in this back and forth with the judge. And I would say that that back and forth with the judge is just part of his show, really. I mean, this is, this is what he does outside the courtroom and he's now doing it inside the courtroom. So they did have that back and forth that Wendy mentioned where he, uh, where the judge said, look, you're, you're going to make me, I'm going to kick you out essentially. And he said, you'd love to do that. Uh, You know, this is just his back and forth that he, he wants to do. He wants to leave there and say, Hey, look, the judge kicked me out or she, you know, he threatened me or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, this is just part of the politics that we're seeing in this, in this presidential election. And very, w- very unusual. Never w- seen it before. What you're getting at there, Anita, is that Eugene Carroll isn't the victim in this case. Donald Trump is. If he gets kicked out of court, if he gets bullied by a judge, he's the victim. He's the one right, and he's, who's been put And on. he said that over and over. Um, and that's why people actually think that he's doing, you know, we thought these criminal cases, and this is obviously not a criminal case, but his other cases and this case would actually harm him. And, and it looks like it's actually helping him because how he's turned it around. Well, the Supreme Court is also finding itself in the middle of Donald Trump's legal wars. In a couple of weeks, they're going to hear arguments over whether Donald Trump is qualified to hold federal office, given his role on January 6th. But for now, the court has other very important matters to deal with. On Wednesday, the justices heard arguments in a case that could upend federal agencies' regulatory powers for good. The fight is over a rule put in place under the Trump administration that requires herring fishermen to pay for federal observers who monitor their operations at sea. Commercial fishing is hard. Space on board vehicle vessels is tight and margins are tighter still. Therefore, for, the, for, the, for my clients, having to carry federal observers on board is a burden, but having to pay their salaries is a crippling blow. That was attorney Paul Clement representing Bright Enterprises, a Cape May, New Jersey fishing company. He argued before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. Um, Libby, this case started with herring fishermen, but it's really about so much more. It's a huge case because the decision could wipe away the so-called Chevron deference, What is that and why is this case about fish so much more important? Well, this is like two cases uh, that are challenging a rule issued by the National Marine Fisheries Service. And it's, you know, fish people are obsessed with this. Coming from Alaska, I can tell you this is a, <laughs> this is a big story. Um, but but there's, a, there's a much bigger question here about the interpretation of, of federal law. And I, and I might actually defer to Anita and some others about uh, who might be following it more closely than I am about why this is so important. Um, but we're once again hitting this question of just how much power does the federal government have um, and how much is open to the National Marine Fisheries Service interpretation um, to interpret the law and figure out the law. So, Wendy, beyond the fish, uh, fish, commercial fishing off the coast of Alaska, where, granted, this is a huge issue, what could happen if Chevron deference, which is a sort of a legal advertisement mm-hmm. term of art there, what could happen if it's overturned? What happens to the power of the federal government to regulate activities? 
Well, no less than a wholesale change in that part of the way the federal government operates. I mean, right now, that, that's why the Supreme Court took a case that we're all joking, even though these fishermen are having a, you know, a hard time. We're all, the Supreme Court took a case about herring because what it would mean if they undid this. Congress passes a law that says, you know, people shouldn't do this or that. And then the agencies responsible for that, the EPA, the Department of Housing, whatever it is, carries out that law. However, as, as the Democrats or liberals on this case would argue, the co laws from Congress are sometimes extremely vague. And so experts at the agency interpret that law and then apply it, maybe going outside the scope of what Congress wrote, because Congress wrote, you know, not, not a thousand pages, but maybe a hundred pages. So the, what Republicans and conservatives are arguing is that that has gone out of control, that agencies are making new law, they are creating regulations, they are overburdening businesses and herring fishermen and Chevron, I mean, the whole gamut of it. So if this Chevron deference is overturned by a conservative Supreme Court, the agencies will be limited to exactly what Congress wrote in, in, in applying regulations to the laws that they gave. So it would really, really change a lot of what's going on. There's another reason businesses don't like the Chevron deference is that right now, let's say the EPA is fairly liberal because Biden is running it. If Trump is elected, all those regulations will change again. And then let's say a Democrat is elected after that and all those regulations change again. And so for businesses, it means they can't really plan more than four or eight years ahead. So it's a very important case. Is there a world if the conservative Supreme Court goes far on Chevron deference, where, as you mentioned, environmental standards, the FDA regulating what's safe and effective, safety standards, even labor rules, where this court says the federal government basically the, the executive branch really doesn't have power to say what's what unless Congress tells them exactly? Pretty much. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert. But the, my understanding is that, for example, there is the American with Disabilities Act. Let's take that. Um, and whatever Congress has said in that about businesses has to be implemented. What the agency over that cannot do is then go even further. So they would be hamstrung. It doesn't mean those laws don't exist, but they wouldn't be agencies couldn't go further than what the law says. This is a huge, huge case. It kind of flies under the radar, but could have enormous implications for people's lives, their safety at work, and for the economy as a whole. So we're going to be watching that case closely. We have some other Supreme Court news to get to. On Monday, the Biden administration asked Supreme Court justices to grant it access to a section of the U.S.-Mexico border currently occupied by the Texas National Guard and Texas Military Department, Republican Governor Greg Abbott isn't allowing federal or public access to these areas. Libby, what's behind this legal war between Texas and the governor and the Biden administration? Yeah, well, Todd, the Department of Homeland Security said that just a week ago, a woman and two children drowned in the Rio Grande. Um, they say it's because Border Patrol agents were physically barred by Texas officials from entering the area under orders from the Republican governor. Now, the Texas military department is disputing that statement, but there's a real question of just who was able to render aid or not able to render aid. And obviously, it, uh, regardless of what Texas is saying in defense, they didn't save those people. Um, there is uh, a real 
standoff here between the state of Texas and the federal government about access uh, to this section of the U.S.-Mexico border. And so far, Texas has refused to comply with a cease and desist letter from the Biden administration. Um, and, and so now we're in this standoff here over this area, uh, which is an epicenter on the border of illegal immigration and people crossing. Um, and so we will now see how this is resolved. It's it's a question of, you know, the state's rights, of course, but it's also a question here of just how far Governor Abbott will be able to go uh, to push back against the federal government who is demanding access to this area and saying it's 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 not just for uh, a, you know, over a question of uh, legality. It's a question of saving people's lives and rendering aid. And also a question of a political confrontation and a public confrontation between the conservative Republican governor of Texas and Joe Biden over immigration. Well, let's take another quick break and we'll have more to say about border policy and immigration in just a moment. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Let's get back to our roundup. We were in Texas before the break, and let's stay there for the moment, because the Justice Department released a massive report on Thursday about the mass shooting and the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. That's where a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers in May of 2022. This is a 575-page report from the DOJ. It says there were critical failures in leadership by law enforcement in the response to that awful shooting. It's the fullest official accounting of what happened to date. Anita, what else does the report say in in detail? Yeah, this is just a you know, they thought this would take months and it's really taken years to do this because the report, as you indicated, was so massive. They talked to 250 or 60 people, there are 14,000 documents and videos, and it's really just an uh, alarming report that goes through detail by detail of every failure. They called it, a, you know, quote, cascading failures of leadership, decision-making, tactics, policy, and training. So basically everything you can think of beforehand uh, and during that day. Of course, the most significant failure is something that we 
had suspected and have heard from other, you know, we heard that day and then in the days and weeks since, was the decision by the local police officials to classify the incident as a barricaded standoff. So what does that mean? It means they didn't go in. Mm. If there's an active shooter scenario, they would have immediately gone in and tried to you know, sort of take out the shooter or or do something uh, immediately. And if you will remember, uh, you know, there was more than an hour went by before police actually went in. Um, and you heard the attorney general this week when, when talking about this report and, and delivering the findings saying that he feels that lives were lost that didn't need to be lost, that if the police had acted sooner, then lives could have been saved. But there were so many other failures that this report talked about. I mean, it's just astounding at how many, um, you know, from the medical attention to the lack of communication uh, to the training beforehand. I mean, it was just really just very, very damning. And we knew it would be because we've seen other reports. We saw what happened that day. Uh, but it, it, as you mentioned, it was the most comprehensive report we've seen and really laid out the details of what happened that day. And one of the other damning parts of this awful situation, and you hit on so many of them, is how few people have lost their jobs as a result. A couple, yes. But given the breadth of the failure that you're describing, Anita, very, very few people have actually had to go find something else to do after that disaster in Evalde. Okay. Well, it's time now to talk about Congress, because on Thursday, lawmakers passed another, yes, another stopgap spending bill. That's the kind that narrowly averts a government shutdown for now. Lawmakers now have until early March to fund the government for the rest of the year. This is the third time since the start of the fiscal year on October 1st that Congress has, yes, failed to come up with a long-term spending agreement. So Libby, Republicans and Democrats had a deal on spending levels, a big deal. It was a big deal. We covered it here on 1A. Then that deal fell apart. Then they landed here in this awful place. What happened? (laughs) Well, it's a victory, Todd, because the government remains open. Mm, I'm going to say it's not a victory. Go ahead. (laughs) As you said, until March. I mean, the idea that this has just been kicked down the can for a handful of weeks is... Uh, you know, giving everybody heartburn in Washington. Um, So here's the deal. Uh, There is no deal. Um, Speaker Johnson, in this new role, is trying to walk a very narrow and high tightrope of trying to keep his right-wing caucus appeased and not kick him out like happened to his predecessor, um, but also do the real work of governing. And we see a lot of different coalitions here. Um, What's at the heart of this is the Biden administration Democrats, and some top Republicans want to ensure aid to Ukraine to fight off Russia. But many Republicans want to also see uh, a crackdown on the southern border, uh, tougher laws there. And what's really interesting here is that some leading Senate Republicans have said, hey, guys, this is actually the best chance we have to get something done Because let's say Donald Trump is president in a couple of years again, we're not going to get anything out of Democrats at that point. So, you know, there's a lot of irony here because we even have people like Mitch McConnell saying this could be a moment to achieve something. Um, Democrats are bulking at what they consider to be a real severe set of policy uh, issues that um, Speaker Johnson and his coalition want. But Johnson did buck his right flank in order just to get this minor bill squeezed out. 
of Congress for the next couple of weeks. Some incentive, of course, was the looming snowstorm (laughs) that was coming and they all wanted to be able to get back home uh, before the weekend. Um, I don't I'd love to hear what the other panelists think, but it's a it's a I'm not going to put a lot of money on the idea of them getting this deal. But there are some players who say it could still happen. Uh, Anita's team at Politico did a great story about how some Democrats are saying they would even cross over and help keep Speaker Johnson as speaker if they had to just if they can just get through this process. Now, that's unlikely to even get that far um, because, you know, that would take a lot of um, hurdles that Johnson would even have to get over to need their help. And, you know, but the margins of Congress are so close right now in the House of Representatives um, that there are going to be a lot of people trying to jo- jostle and jockey uh, for some for some solution and path forward here. Um, Wendy, Libby is describing the background of this debate, which is about Ukraine and immigration. And we might talk a little bit more about that. But this vote this week was about keeping the lights on and 106 Republicans voted against it. Just that thing. Yes, there's a lot going on in the background, but 106 Republicans voted against this leadership bill to keep the lights on. What do they want? They want Donald Trump to be president of the United States. I mean, this this is the... Um, This is the uh, people who either belong to the Freedom Caucus or follow the Freedom Caucus who are not interested in bipartisan compromise, who are not interested really, um, this is our, I don't want to say they're not interested in governing, but they are more interested in the political fight, in scoring points, in owning the other side than they are in actually passing legislation because all this does is fund it till March. So, you know, you can put off the fight then, but they want this just, I'm going to fight through this. It's better than um, agreeing with a Democrat or even a moderate Republican. Um, and so it's it's all about, you know, scoring points. Uh, President Biden does want that deal on funding Ukraine and Israel. Libby mentioned it. He met with a bipartisan group of congressional leaders this week to talk about that part, the part that's looming in the background of this vote to keep the government open. Here's what House Speaker Mike Johnson said after meeting with the president on Wednesday. We understand that all these things are important, but we must insist, we must insist that the border be the top priority. I I think we have some consensus around that table. Everyone understands the urgency of that, and we're going to continue to press for it. So, Anita, um, Libby and Wendy drove us there. Republicans have tied support for Ukraine against Vladimir Putin to getting broad new border control measures in Texas and elsewhere. But Mike Johnson there, the speaker this week, didn't he say that any immigration deal is dead in the House? So what's really going on with this? Yeah, I I mean, I felt like there was a little bit of a, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's Congress, so I can't say it's going to happen. But I felt like there was a little bit of a tone difference there, right? So you did mention this White House meeting. It was, you know, the leadership, but as well as... uh, you know, Democratic and Republican leaders of various committees that that deal with these issues. You know, they talked, uh, they were ostensibly there so that the White House and the president could, you know, lay out for them why Ukraine uh, and Israel need this funding. So this is $110 billion in stalled aid to Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies. And so they made that case. What I did hear coming out of that 
was the speaker say, yes, we do need to tie this to border security, but he didn't outright say it needed to be the bill that they've been talking about, which I thought left a little wiggle room. Uh, the Senate right now is looking at some kind of border deal and uh, you know, senators are saying, like, let's take that up. So there's a couple possibilities. First of all, maybe nothing will happen. And we've seen that time and time again. They may try to come up with a different compromise. Maybe the Senate has something and they'll ask the House to to go into conference and, and talk about what they could come up with there. Of course, you are, you know, we have seen for a long time, the House have some some of their own deals uh, on the border that the president says and the White House says that they just can't go for. We did see the president say, look, I'll do something. Let's try to come up with something. So, you know, I heard some members of Congress say, look, they're a little bit more optimistic than they were. But, you know, we've been down that road before time and time again on, on lots of deals. So not going to say that it's going to happen. But this was a step in the right direction if they're trying to get this done. So support for Ukraine against Vladimir Putin and a crackdown at the border are all tied together now. That's the way the Republicans want it. But, Wendy, if right-wing Republicans in the House don't want to support Ukraine, and they don't, and Donald Trump doesn't want any border deal, which he doesn't, he made that clear on Fox News. He made it clear to Laura Ingram, and he made it clear to Mike Johnson he does not want a deal here. Where is the incentive to get any of this done? Um, among those right-wing, uh, you know, Trump acolytes, there there is no incentive. What what Mike Johnson will need is Democrats who want to get the job done, and those. Other Republicans, of whom there are apparently about a hundred, um, who who are interested in, you know, um, governing and are interested also in, well, are are sophisticated enough to know that you don't get everything you want in every deal, but you get a little bit of a way there, and then you you can say you had a big win and score the political points, and then next time there will be another discussion and you've moved the ball. I mean, we we have gotten to the point where Democrats acknowledge the border is a huge problem, Republicans acknowledge there's a huge problem. Um, in the pre-Trump era, I think this actually could have you know gotten done. All right, one more story now, and it's a good news story on the economy for working people. And yes, believe it, it actually comes from Congress. Congressional lawmakers announced a bipartisan deal to temporarily expand the child tax credit and to reinstate a series of tax breaks for businesses. Here's Chuck Schumer. This morning, Senate Finance Chairman Wyden and House Ways and Means Chairman Smith announced a bipartisan bicameral agreement on a tax framework that will significantly improve the lives of millions of working families and help mainstream businesses grow in today's economy. <clears throat> it's taken a lot of hard work with this framework, and I applaud the good work done by Chairman Wyden, Chairman Smith, and everyone on both sides who made this agreement possible. That's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer there. He's talking about the child tax credit, the expansion of which expired in 2021, was credited with making the biggest dent in child poverty in this country in decades. So this one's flying under the radar, but I alert you that if the, the expansion of the child tax credit, uh, tax credit is renewed, this could be a huge deal for working people and for the working poor in this country. And that might be a bit of good news for people who are punching the clock from nine to five, especially. They're not punching the clock from nine to five in Davos. Let's be honest. That's really not how those people view the economy. But the World Economic Forum did take place in Davos, Switzerland. One executive who was not very hopeful about the future of the economy, even though the Fed 
and the White House and most economists are getting bright and sunny was J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, who's sounding the alarms. I, I think it's a mistake to assume that everything's hunky-dory. And, you know, and when stock markets are up, it's kind of like this little drug we all feel. Like, it's just great. You know? But remember, we've had so much fiscal and monetary stimulation, so I'm a little more on the cautious side that we are facing a lot of things in, 20, in 24 or 25. And you, you mentioned Ukraine, the terrorist activity in Israel, the Red Sea, quantitative tightening, which I still question if we understand exactly how that works. I don't think we do. How QE actually worked, what the effect of negative, you know, zero rates was for all this time, uh, and obviously the politics. Wendy Benjaminson, you're Bloomberg. You get the last word on the economy. Uh, the Fed doesn't necessarily agree with Jamie Dimon. Uh, consumer confidence, people are spending like Jamie Dimon doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> when are we going to know who's right? It could be the third quarter. I, the the Atlanta Fed chairman, Rafael Bostic, said this week that he's hoping that if all these things Jamie Dimon is talking about calm down a little and inflation gets to 2%, they will start easing interest rates. And that may not be in time for Joe Biden, but it may be in time for for consumers like us to start feeling a a little less of the pinch. An important political question. I remind you, keep your eyes on the child tax credit. It's a big deal for working people in this country. That was Wendy Benjaminson, senior Washington editor for Bloomberg News. I want to thank Libby Casey, senior news anchor covering politics and breaking news at The Post, and Anita Kumar, senior managing editor at Politico. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup. It's been more than 100 days of war in Gaza, and the health system is on the verge of total collapse. And in Israel, family members of the youngest hostage taken by Hamas celebrate a somber first birthday. Bring them home now. Bring them home. We're planning planning right now a birthday for somebody that's not here. The Middle East gets more dangerous as Iran bombs targets in Pakistan and Iraq and Syria. And in Guatemala, a new president is inaugurated amidst protests and violence. Back with that and more in just a moment. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. (laughs) Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get to the global edition of the News Roundup now and meet our guests for the day. Amy McKinnon is national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy. Thanks for being here, Amy. Happy to be here. Indira Lakshmanan is a longtime international news reporter and editor and sometimes host of this show. Hi, Indira. Hi, Todd. How are you? Great. It's great to have you here. Joyce Karam is here. She's senior news editor at All Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. Great to have you here, Joyce. Great to be with you, Todd. All right. I'm glad you all are here. We have a lot to get to and some trouble spots around the world, especially around the Middle East, around the Red Sea, and around Iran. So let's start in Iran. This week, Tehran hit targets in neighboring Pakistan, in Iraq, and in Syria. I mentioned some casualties and injuries were reported. Um, Joyce, these are three countries that to varying degrees 
are actually friendly with Iran. So what's behind these various strikes to the east, uh, to the south east, and also to the west in Syria? Well, uh, these these were definitely marking big escalation uh, from Iran. These were strikes that Iran conducted over the course of 48 hours, hitting three countries. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, the Iranians have said these are in response to terror attacks inside Iran in December. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is uh, with the strikes, they're, what they're showing us, what they're telling us is the Iran's Iran uh, Revolutionary Guard, they're showing a more assertive and aggressive uh, approach regionally in light of the Gaza war, in light of other regional uh, developments. Uh, now, with Iraq and uh, Syria, one can argue that the Iranians... You know, they hid there, uh, they have presence there with proxies, and they got away with it. There is, There was no retaliation. Uh, there was a complaint filed at the Security Council by um, by the Iraqi government, but it's unlikely to, to get anywhere. So it was more a show of force, a uh, show of their presence and their uh, power in, in, in these countries. With Pakistan, it was a very different uh, dynamic and one that perhaps uh, is showing overreach uh, by Iran. Uh, the strikes um, from Iran hit the border area, but they went deeper uh, than than previous actions uh, by Iran. We saw Pakistan uh, retaliating uh, on Thursday and hitting also deep in the borderlands inside Iran. Todd, this is the first time we see a foreign country launch airstrikes inside Iran hmm. since the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. So this is definitely uh, an uptick in uh, regional tension and regional uh, escalation efforts underway now. China, Turkey, uh, the U.S. calling for restraint and to avoid, uh, you know, this dragging into more tit for tat uh, reaction. So we, we are monitoring and uh, to see where this uh, this escalation goes. Indira Joyce is describing a situation where Iran is lashing out uh, at proxy conflicts against uh, Islamic State, against rebels uh, that cross the border with Pakistan and in Iraq. Iran says it has no restrictions. It'll keep doing this. And then the corollary question we're all already thinking of, what's the connection to Israel's war in Gaza? Right. Well, there's a very strong connection, but let's also not forget that I think a large reason that Iran is showing this um, strength is to reassure conservatives domestically um, and to warn Israel and the United States and terrorist groups that Iran will strike back if it's attacked. So don't forget that this comes just after a major, major attack on Iranian soil. Um, and, you know, more than 100 people were killed. And so this was uh, a thing where there was a requirement in Iran's mind to respond. That attack has largely been blamed on the Afghanistan branch of ISIS. Um, but the idea of, you know, launching these long-range missile attacks into essentially all of your neighbors, Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan, is a really strong reaction. And what was striking to me about 
Iraq's reaction is that Baghdad was actually unusually strong in its reaction, considering that Iraq has very close ties with Iran. They're both Shia-dominated governments. Um, Iran claimed that it was hitting a um, an Iraq an Israeli base in Erbil in northern Iraq that Israel was using for um, for its own attacks and intelligence gathering. Um, Iraq said that that was not true and that, in fact, Iran had destroyed the house of a well-known and very rich Iraqi Kurd businessman, killing him and his family. Um, so as much as Tehran says that this was an Israeli spy center, the Iraqi government has said, no, it was not, and they recalled their ambassador, which is a very big deal. Um, you know, I think that Iran is... It's supporting its proxy forces, remember, in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. So we haven't even talked about the Houthis yet. Um, but it's also having to lash back um, for this January 13th twin suicide bombing in Iran that killed nearly 100 people. And it's also a message to the U.S. saying, look, we have this missile capability. So it's a huge um, escalation in what is really turning into a regional war. This is Iran flexing, choosing to flex at a time uh, against some of its proxy enemies all over the world. But it's choosing some special timing here, Amy. And it's not just against Iraq or Syria or Pakistan, as, as we've seen, because we have to talk about the Red Sea, of course, where U.S. attempts to stop attacks on ships in the region ramped up this week. Iran is involved in that situation, too. Here's Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh on Thursday. This morning, U.S. Central Command forces conducted strikes on two Houthi anti-ship missiles that were aimed into the Southern Red Sea. Also last night, the U.S. US Central Command conducted strikes on 14 Houthi missiles at over a dozen locations. These missiles on launch rails presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the region and could have been fired at any time. So later on Thursday, the U.S. military filed un- fired another wave of missiles at Houthi-controlled sites, marking the fifth time in a week that it had directly targeted the group in Yemen. I mention Iran because, of course, the Houthis are Shia uh, militia in Yemen backed by Iran. And Amy, the U.S. says here it's trying to protect a key global shipping route. The Houthis say they're acting against Israel and the U.S. for its support of Israel's war in Gaza. What what calculation is the White House making here? On the one hand, protecting shipping, checking an Iranian proxy, but also the risk of a regional escalation. I mean, I think you covered it, Todd. I mean, this is, um, as I think listeners will be getting, is a extraordinarily complicated game of three-dimensional chess that we're watching unfold across the Middle East right now. I think there's a number of uh, uh, kind of buckets, if you will, to put it in the administration's language that, that they're looking at here. The first is to protect shipping, which, you know, in the context of, of wars sounds, you know, almost frivolous when lives are on the line. But it, that the Red Sea is a major shipping choke point. A huge uh, portion of global shipping goes through that lane. And if that start, if that's harassed, if ships have to reroute around Africa, going from China to Europe, that drives up inflation. We're that, talking Suez Canal. Wars have been fought before. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Wars have been fought over shipping. It's it's no small deal for the global economy. So that is one of, and that's something that the U.S. Navy has had at its you know central objective since its very founding. So that's a a core goal here for the Biden 
administration. It's also to check an Iranian proxy, the Houthis, as you mentioned, as other Iranian proxies around the region are all uh, firing off, most notably, of course, Hamas. But you also have, have Hezbollah on that northern northern border with Israel, um, where tensions are, are, are very high right now. And so it's trying to kind of contain that, what Iran calls its kind of axis of resistance in the region at this time. But, but what the long-term goal is, where this goes, I think that's a, a big question. There's been a lot of questions among lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans, about the War Powers Act, about, about what authority the Biden administration has, has here to launch strikes in Yemen um, and where this, this could potentially go. What insights do we have about how the White House and the president are thinking through that balance that you just mentioned, checking an Iranian proxy, pushing back on Iran, who's happy to have missiles flying all over the Middle East, but also trying to avoid the Gaza war becoming a regional war, which is clearly Iran would be thrilled with. Well, I think that, you know, in their view, that's the goal here, right, is to prevent this becoming a regional war, is to kind of tame the Houthis. Um, These strikes have been very much confined to missile launch sites, points of military importance for the Houthis. And I think the the logic is if that's contained to those kind of sites, that can contain the potential threats to to a wider war. The Houthis themselves have said that this is in retaliation for the war in Gaza. However, there's been some questions raised about that because not all of the ships that they they have attacked have any visible connections to Israel or to that conflict. Right. Many of them have just been flagged ships, commercial shipping that have nothing to do yep. with that conflict. Clearly a, a lash out at the at the United States. Joyce, another development here in Washington as relates to the Houthis is that they are now going to be back on the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. They were taken off in 2021 by President Joe Biden after his inauguration, citing the dire humanitarian conditions in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. So how could this reassignment affect the situation there? What's at play? Well, truly, Todd, uh, this designation is a full detour by the Biden administration. I mean, I remember when the uh, president came to power, 2021, big uh, uh, press release, big uh, press push that the Houthis uh, will be removed from that same designation. Uh, and there will be efforts to uh, get to a truce in Yemen. Back at the time, the priority was ending uh, the war in Yemen. This has completely shifted now. The Biden administration is finding uh, itself now being a party in in a uh, larger uh, war uh, with the Houthis. Uh, The strikes that uh, you've mentioned, uh, that Amy talked about, we've seen at least five rounds of uh, uh, U.S. strikes against uh, the Houthis. Uh, we, we're seeing continued uh, attacks on, um, on shipping uh, uh, through, the Red, through the Red Sea, over 30 since, uh, since the Gaza war uh, started. And the majority of those are actually international. They're not even uh, Israeli-affiliated. Uh, ships. So the terrorist designation is another tool that the administration is hoping it would uh, deter uh, the Houthis. It would restrain them. It would punish them. The problem with that is the humanitarian situation in Yemen. Uh, this is a country, as you know, Todd, uh, has extreme poverty. Half the population uh, is, is considered poor. It's been in a state of war for now uh, seven years. So uh, in this designation, it's important to note that it's not an FTO. 
a foreign terrorist organization designation, mm. it's uh, one level less. What does that mean? That means it leaves the U.S. the room uh, to grant waivers to still work with humanitarian uh, organizations on the ground who uh, communicate with the Houthis because the, the Houthis are, uh, they control the government in in Sana'a, in, in Yemen's capital. Well, the so, United States confrontation with the Houthis is guaranteed to be on the roundup next week. I'll go ahead and predict that because uh, their attacks on shipping don't seem to be abating. The United States, the White House seems to be committed to hitting these weapon sites. So we're going to be following that story. Um, Amy, just to stay in the region for just a second, the immediate mm-hmm. region, I should say, just on the other side of the straits there in the Southern Red Sea mm-hmm. is the Gulf of Aden. And there were a couple of U.S. Navy SEALs yeah. who went missing in the Gulf. Apparently, search and rescue is continuing in the Gulf of Aden with U.S. Navy aircraft and ships participating in the search for these two, uh, for these two Navy SEALs, these two sailors. What were they doing in the Gulf? What do we know about them now? So they were conducting a mission to um, uh, stop and search a small shipping, a small fishing vessel. Sorry, um, which the U.S. government had suspicions was harboring Iranian weapons and was on on its way to to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. As you mentioned, these are relatively common uh, missions for for the U.S. Navy SEALs in the region. Um, what the Pentagon has said about about the incident is that one of, I mean, at the moment that they were they were trying to board the ship, the SEALs were boarding the ship. Um, there was incredibly rough waters. You know, it's it's wind incredibly high waves. These are some of the most difficult kind of missions that the SEALs will undertake. Um, One SEAL went overboard and then the other, as is protocol, jumped in to rescue him. And that was the last moment that that, that they were seen. Um, And search and rescue missions or search and rescue is is still underway. And it it has been for days. There's been no official designation of anything aside from search and rescue. But it's been many, many days since since that changed. That's a long time to be at sea. Okay. We're going to go to Gaza in Israel, but first let's stop by Iraq just for a moment. The country's leader in Iraq is calling for the United States to leave. Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani says the U.S.-led anti-terrorist coalition is no longer needed in his country. The U.S. has about 2,500 soldiers in Iraq and 900 in Syria aiding the fight against Islamic State. Now, this comes after an increase in attacks on foreign groups by the Islamic resistance, which opposes U.S. support for Israel. The Pentagon says it's recorded 130 attacks in Iraq and in Syria in less than three months. All right, that's our check-in in Iraq, and now we can move on to the war on Gaza because on Thursday, Al-Isra University said that Israeli forces blew up its main campus outside of Gaza City. Video footage circulating online, apparently taken by a drone, shows that complex of buildings being blown up in what appears to be a controlled explosion. UN monitors say that about 70% of school buildings across Gaza have been damaged now. Gaza's health ministry says that more than 142 people have been killed in the last 24 hours, and that brings the total number of people killed in Gaza since October 7th to nearly 25,000. Some more grim numbers. The UN now says that hundreds of thousands in Gaza are no longer, quote, at risk of famine. They're now officially in famine. The tiny Gaza Strip is home to 2.3 million people, of course. Israel says some 1,200 Israelis have been killed, mostly on October 7th when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south of that country, and about half of the approximately 240 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive there. 
So that's our check-in on Israel and Gaza, the grim news that we have to touch on every week. Indira, this week, a deal brokered between Israel and Hamas saw some aid make its way from Egypt into Gaza. It includes medicine for those Israeli captives I mentioned that Hamas is still holding. The aid was delivered to the International Committee of the Red Cross, and once across the border into Gaza, it was handed over to Hamas, a fact of life that's problematic to a lot of observers because they don't know what Hamas does with that aid once they get their hands on it. What did it take to get even this deal, to get basic medicine, though, into Gaza? Right. This, remember, we're more than 100 days into this crisis now since the attack that you described on October 7th and the all-out war that Israel has launched in response. And as you said, with the incredibly high um, casualties there of those um, 24, 25,000 Palestinians who are dead in Gaza, the health ministry says more than 10,000 of them are children. So there was a lot of negotiations that um, were basically mediated by Qatar and France to get a shipment of medicine meant for Israeli hostages, but along with a lot of medicine for Palestinian civilians. So the deal was that a Hamas spokesman claimed that for every box of medicine that Qatar was supplying for the hostages, there would have to be a thousand boxes of medicine supplied for the people of Gaza. So I don't know that we have a, you know, full inventory of exactly what went in the numbers. And as you say, once it goes over to the hands of Hamas, we don't know how it's being doled out, but that was the deal. And the belief is that about one third of the Israeli hostages um, who are still in captivity have chronic medical conditions and have suffered now more than three months without their medicine. So the families, you know, pressured the Israeli government to get medicine to them somehow. I mean, I think this leads us to another really interesting question, which is the divisions within Israel and within the war cabinet itself over how to continue to prosecute this, because there's obviously pressure from the hostage, the remaining hostages family members to do whatever it takes to get those hostages free. Well, here's the backdrop of that very issue, which I'm glad you teed up. Here is sound from a gathering of hostages, a gathering of families at Hostage Square in Tel Aviv, marking a grim milestone just this week. We're waiting for them all, each minute, each second. They were kidnapped because the state failed, because we failed. And now we must do everything, everything to release them. That was the translated father of one hostage with angry words for the government. Um, Indira brings it up. Joyce, what pressure is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing domestically and from the international community right now? We've learned in weeks past um, that he's being held responsible for the terrible attack on October 7th. We've heard in the past that he's a dead man walking politically, but that he's got a war cabinet to keep the war and I guess his political lifeline going. Where does it stand now? Uh, well, Todd, I I personally tend not to use the word, uh, the phrase dead man walking with Netanyahu because this guy has been walking for pretty a long time and he is such a survival survivor. He's the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. But uh, for sure, he's under a lot of pressure. There are three layers to the pressure that Netanyahu is under now. Uh, one internally, as Indira mentioned, from uh, his own cabinet, the war cabinet ministers that he brought in, mainly uh, Gadi Eisenkot and Benny Gatz, are publicly criticizing him. 
Eisenkot went in an interview this week holding Netanyahu uh, directly responsible uh, for the uh, October uh, 7 attack, implying that he had warnings from uh, the Israeli intelligence. Uh, the other layer that you've mentioned uh, from the hostages, from pressure within Israel is, you know, we're 104 days into the Gaza war. Uh, most of the hostages are still in Gaza. It's estimated, uh, I think the number is 136, are still uh, being held captive. The Israeli Labour Party, its its smaller party, is calling for a session on uh, Monday in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, uh, to hold a vote of no confidence mm. uh, against Netanyahu. The, the uh, Labour Party is a very small uh, coalition, so it's not, it's not expected to go far, but pressure is definitely building. The third layer here is U.S. pressure, differences with the U.S., with the White House. Uh, uh, we, we will see where that goes, but these differences are about the course of the Gaza war and uh, the issue of the hostages and the day after uh, in Gaza. Let's so, talk about the day after right now, because, Amy, there is talk, speaking of the day after, there's a lot of layers, mm-hmm. of a broader deal, mm-hmm. of a deal enrolling Israel and Saudi Arabia in a peace deal that empowers Palestinians, that gets rid of Hamas, that sends money and aid and some dignity to mm-hmm. Palestine and some security to Israel. There is talk of this, but here comes Benjamin Netanyahu just this week declaring that Israel must be, quote, capable of saying no to friends. He was talking about the United States and he was saying there is never going to be a Palestinian state in Gaza or the West Bank or anywhere else. So how does this complicate the third layer that Joyce is talking about, which is relations with the Biden administration and the vision, which I don't have yet, for the end of this conflict. I mean, I think you hit on it there in your introduction that if you look at this on paper, the day after scenario, you can kind of see a path forward. For You can kind of move around the jigsaw puzzle pieces and look at this could work. But then that all starts to fall apart the moment people start opening their mouths, and notably this week, Netanyahu. Um, I mean, what he is saying, he's kind of saying out loud what has been, I think, a de facto policy of his government anyway. They have um, worked pretty steadily to undermine uh, any any real prospects of, of a Palestinian state. Um, but I think saying it out loud in this way um, will come as a real smack in the face to the Biden administration, which has stood by Israel resolutely since October 7th and really given it cover in the international community as there has as outrage has as outrage has grown, as the death toll has increased in uh, um, in Gaza. Um, The Biden administration, for its part, has consistently stated that its vision is for a two state solution for the Israelis and for the Palestinians. Um, But I mean, as as Joyce touched on, I mean, another component to this is will Netanyahu stay after the war? Will he will he survive next week? So his comments this week may not hold sway. But then again, no one has really ever made money betting against Netanyahu. (laughs) Indira, we just have a minute for this question. And I I apologize for that. But what is your take on all of the talk about a deal that brings Saudi Arabia into the peace fold with Israel and pays a dividend uh, in security and uh, in money, in aid, in dignity, and in ultimately 
some kind of two-state solution. What's your take on that talk? Well, my take is that we seem to be very close to that before October 7th. And there are plenty of analysts who think that um, Hamas's attack was in part an effort to scuttle a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. At this point, Saudi Arabia has made clear that there needs to be a future Palestinian state for them to sign on to this deal. Netanyahu has said out loud that he's against that, um, you know, just this week. And so that normalization deal can't happen without the two-state solution. I will say that the Biden administration is letting Israel know that, hey, Saudi Arabia and other Arab states are not going to pay for the rebuilding of Gaza without creating a political horizon for the Palestinians. So it's not just about the peace deal. It's about what happens, how do you rebuild? And there's a huge dividend for Israel if they could get a peace deal with Saudi Arabia. So a lot of this hinges on the future of Netanyahu, the future of his cabinet, and where the sentiment goes towards a two-state solution within the power structure in Israel. Well, before we leave Gaza, the Committee to Protect Journalists, which I support strongly, reports at least 83 journalists and media workers are among the nearly 25,000 killed since the war began on October 7th. Here's Sharif Mansour of CPJ speaking to Democracy Now! earlier this week. The Israeli army has killed more journalists in the span of those three months than any other entity or army have done over a course of one year since 1992. This is the most dangerous and the mo- we've never seen any assignment like this before. Amy, why are journalists under such immense threat in this war? Um, I mean... It's been Palestinian journalists that have borne the the brunt of the death toll by by enormous amount. I mean, in part just because they are in a in such a small territory and the bombing has just been so intense, um, they are caught up as much as as much as Palestinians are. But there have been accusations from Al Jazeera that Israel has deliberately targeted um, some of its journalists. Israel Israel has denied this, um, but um, just eye watering death toll. All right, now let's turn to one of my favorite topics: elections. They are one of my favorites. And as you'll keep hearing for the next 11 months, 2024 is one of the biggest global election years in history. Taiwan was one of the first countries out of the gates. They headed to the polls last week for their presidential election. The nation voted to keep the Democratic Progressive Party or DPP in power for a third straight term. Current Vice President La Ching-Tu won with 40 percent of the vote. Thanks to the Taiwanese people for writing a new chapter in our democracy together. And we have shown the world how much we cherish our democracy. Amy Lai has promised to continue the work of the current president that includes championing and championing an independent Taiwan from China with a separate identity from the mainland. Why is DPP doing so well in three straight elections? Voters seem to love them. Well, I mean, to put things in the kind of the the foreign policy perspective, right, this is the international roundup. Um, There's great concern amongst Taiwanese voters about China, about the prospects of a war, of a cross-straits invasion by China. There's concern about this around the world, not just in Taiwan, which is why these elections were watched quite as closely as they were. Um, So I think you can definitely see the um, the victory of the DPP for its third election in a row. The DPP has historically been, has lent more towards independence for Taiwan. It's in defense of its sovereignty. It's moved a little bit more centrist in recent years. Um, But I think you can definitely see that as a as a read that Taiwanese voters are very concerned about about China's intentions. But of course, always worth to bear in mind, there's a myriad of domestic factors as well and why anyone votes for any particular party. I mean, Indira, China's intentions 
always loom over Taiwanese politics, I'm sure. I mean, it's a little trite to say. Um, what's your read on D- what DPP is offering voters um, in relation to Taiwan's pressure uh, across the straits? Well, I think it's interesting that even though DPP won its third straight election, it wasn't as resounding a victory this time mm. in that it was a divided vote share. So the DPP candidate, um, President-elect Lai, got 40% of the vote, but the KMT or Kuomintang, um, you know, main opposition party got 33%. And then this new party called the TPP, um, they got 26%. So if you combine the two opposition parties, they got more. <laughs> they dwarfed the Share that President-elect Lai got. I think what's happening here, to take a sort of a little bit of a deeper dive into Taiwanese politics, is that um, the DPP is essentially offering deterrence. They've always said, we support an independent Taiwan, we're boosting the defense budget and protecting ourselves against China. Meanwhile, the KMT this time has said, okay, well, they've always been the party that was more for talking to mainland China. And this time they're saying, well, we're also going to boost Taiwan's defense budget and enhance the nation's security and deterrent capabilities. So it becomes harder to see a differentiation between the national security policies of the two. And that's when domestic issues become Mm. a sort of deciding vote. And this third party that came in um, was more sort of a middle ground. It attracted a lot of younger voters who want change, who want to break free from this kind of, you know, duopoly between the DPP and the KMT. So I think that it's going to be a little bit harder for him to govern because he doesn't have, you know, a straight majority. And I think that, you know, Beijing, let's keep in mind, has been threatening Taiwan the whole time and has set as 2027 as a deadline by which they want reunification with the mainland, but they have not directly attacked Taiwan. And I think, you know, analyzing um, Xi Jinping's, you know, uh, actions so far, it seems like that's really not what he wants. He doesn't want to have to do an attack. What he wants is a peaceful reunification, which I don't think is what people in Taiwan want. So, um, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that China conducted joint combat patrols around Taiwan on Wednesday, which is sort of a way of upping military intimidation after the election without outright um you know, without outright taking um, a really offensive stance. Letting people in Taiwan know just what's possible over their horizon. I think it's also safe to say axiomatic at this point that China is watching Ukraine closely and watching how the West reacts and continues to support or does not support Ukraine's struggle against Russian aggression in their country, because that might tell Xi Jinping a lot about how far the U.S. and its allies are willing to go to prevent some kind of eventuality across the straits with Taiwan. All right, we'll leave that there for a moment because while we're talking about elections, we have to go way across the Pacific to Guatemala because the country's new president there was sworn in this past weekend in the capital, Guatemala City, approximately nine hours after he was scheduled to become president. What might appear to be simply the outcome of a political process and formal changes in institutions is in reality the starting point for a transformation that has begun in each and every one of us. Amy, that's Bernardo Arevalo. He won Guatemala's presidential election in August. It took him a long time to be sworn in. Why did that happen? What do we know about him? 
Right, quite the saga uh, down in Guatemala. Um, he won the elections with a comfortable margin, really campaigning on a anti-corruption platform. Arevalo is a progressive. He was an academic turned politician. Um, but he's faced a number of legal challenges from the country's attorney general, which observers have said is part of a, an effort by the establishment to essentially kneecap and derail his inauguration, his anti-corruption platform really seen as as a threat to some, some deep-rooted interests, deep-rooted corruption interests in, in Guatemala. Joyce, um, do you have a read on uh, Aravalo and, and his rise to power there in Guatemala? I mean, what we know, I mean, from all what we're seeing is this is a truly a watershed moment for Guatemala. This guy is very much a reformist. He's anti-corruption. Uh, His campaign was, uh, uh, you know, against uh, inflation, against uh, the rising violence in the country. Uh, him himself, he's uh, a career diplomat. He's a uh, sociologist and a son of a former uh, uh, president. The issue that May come for uh, for Aravello is the opposition he's he's facing uh, within uh, the system. His inauguration was held for uh, nine hours. There is issues he's having with the attorney general and uh, the ministry of justice there. But as far as his victory, uh, it's definitely seen as a turning point. Uh, uh, him being the leader in in the anti-corruption uh, uh, movement and a progress. Aggressive uh, uh, party that that wants to reshape uh, the politics of uh, Guatemala. There were scenes of protest in Guatemala City. They were posted widely on social media. They were striking. There were riot police in the streets clashing with protesters, a lot of them from indigenous groups, even legislators inside Congress. They were yelling at each other about accepting newly uh, elected deputies in this election. USAID Administrator Samantha Power high government representative was in the country for the inauguration. So all that to say being closely watched by the United States right here in our neighborhood, democratic elections in Guatemala and a path forward with a reformer, hopefully for that country. All right, we leave Guatemala there and we move to the latest out of the humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia's Tigray region. I mentioned this for a moment earlier, around 225 people have starved to death in one of Tigray in one Tigray town since July. That's according to local authorities. The World Food Program halted aid to Ethiopia in August due to food theft. According to the UN, 20 million people require food assistance in Ethiopia. I want to stop by London to talk about a bill that came out of 10 Downing Street and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak um, because he defeated a conservative rebellion over his plan to send asylum seekers all the way to Rwanda as his flagship legislation passed in the House of Commons this week. He held a press conference soon after that bill passed. With all their efforts to block this bill, the Labour Party have shown that they simply don't get it. Their priority is not stopping the boats but stopping the planes, removing people who have no right to be here. No right to be here, says Rishi Sunak. Um, Indira, what's behind this? There's been a lot of opposition to this in Britain. It's part of the way that Sunak has held together a revolt in his own party uh, in, in Parliament there in London. But this means that refugees to Great Britain or asylum seekers put on planes and flown all the way to Rwanda. What's behind this? 
Right. I mean, to remind listeners, in November, um, just a few months ago, the UK Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Rishi Sunak's Rwanda scheme was unlawful. Um, It said that, you know, true asylum seekers who were sent off to Rwanda would be at risk of being deported back to their home countries, and also pointed out that Rwanda does not have a good human rights record, and that the UK itself, um, the, the government has officially criticized Rwanda's human rights. Records. So what Rishi Sunak has done is he's basically suggested or he's put into the language of this new bill, um, essentially said that the UK should um, ignore key sections of the Human Rights Act that would sidestep the Supreme Court's judgment, that it also would order the courts to ignore other British laws or international laws, such as the International Refugee Convention that would stand in the way of deportations to Rwanda. And so a lot of MPs have criticized the legislation because they believe it breaks international law. And there are a number of members of the House of Lords who have publicly criticized this bill and said that this is, you know, essentially undemocratic what Rishi Sunak is trying to do. It's not entirely clear that the House of Lords would actually veto this. Um, Mm. They might send it back with various suggestions and changes. Um, But, you know, at the heart of all this is the Labour Party saying that this is all a very expensive gimmick and unworkable and unlawful, a way to try to, you know, stand high on the Tory platform against immigration um, by sending these people off to Africa. Um, But in fact, they're saying that the cost of sending them to Africa and the amount of money that Sunak has already paid Rwanda's government um, actually makes Mm. it more expensive. So they're, you know, essentially the government has already paid 240 million pounds to Rwanda and they owe them a further payment of 50 million pounds next year. What I think is interesting is Rwandan President Paul Kagame has said that he would return the money if no asylum seekers were ultimately sent. But there's a real fight in the UK about whether it's cheaper, more expensive to ship these people off to Rwanda and whether it is unhumanitarian mm. and illegal. And for the political force fortunes of the prime minister, the conservative prime minister there. All right. As we wrap up the show, I want to take just one minute, just one minute with each of our expert guests to get a a view into your notebook, peer into what stories you think are going to be big next week or just what you're thinking about in terms of international news. Joyce, you go first. Just a minute, please. And let us know what story has your attention occupied for the week ahead. Uh, well, obviously the tension in the Middle East, but there is a happier story uh, going on. Turkey sent its first astronaut uh, into space on a European mission, so we're tracking that. Uh, see how that um, uh, how that uh, mission goes. Absolutely fantastic! I love that story. Indira Lakshmanan, go ahead. Um, again, obviously, I'm watching the Middle East and how this is going into a full-fledged regional conflagration, but I'm really fascinated by the Guatemala story um, and Bernardo Arevalo, who's the son of a former president. There is a fantastic story in the Washington Post, which I recommend to everyone that goes behind the scenes of how the Biden administration helped avoid a coup and basically mm. worked quietly to make sure that he was allowed to take power. And um, yeah, it's just a really, mm. really interesting story. Fascinating. So I'll be watching that. Fascinating story there. Amy McKinnon, what's on your radar for this week? I note this is the first time I think I've been on 1A and we haven't mentioned Ukraine, um, which is interesting. Indeed. Um, and with the second anniversary of Russia's invasion coming up in February, um, that's something that we're going to be working on is, is looking to 
what's going on there and, and where does that war go? Yeah, and I will say it's not for um, lack of it being on our radar. You know, we have limited time. I mean, there was there yeah. was coverage of Ukraine. Z- uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was at Davos this week, basically telling the world what's at stake. So there is a huge story there, and you're right. I think we're going to have more opportunity to to talk about it next week. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Those are our experts. Big thanks to our panelists this hour. Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy, and Dira Lakshmanan, longtime international news reporter and editor and sometimes host of this very show, and Joyce Karam, senior news editor at All Monitor. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing newsletter. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. A.C. Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. And Aline Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barbara Anguiano produces our podcast with help from Matthew Simonson this week. This program comes to you from WAMU. It's part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick. It's 1A. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money. Your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.